I will turn, please, to 2 Timothy, again, 2 Timothy and chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. And thank you very much, again, to those of you who are here for the meeting this afternoon. And uh, this is the last time I'll be speaking, so I would also like to thank the assembly here at Stark Road for their kindness in uh, hosting us all this weekend. It takes a lot of work and expense and effort to uh, put on a conference, especially one this size. So we appreciate the devotion of the Christians here that form the assembly at Stark Road. And also thanks to the overseers of the assembly here for their confidence in asking me to participate in the, the preaching at the meetings. Everything that's said from this platform over the course of the conference weekend basically is under the responsibility and accountability of the overseers of this assembly. It is their responsibility to feed the flock of God. And they've asked those of us that are here to speak to assist them in discharging that responsibility. And therefore, I appreciate their confidence and certainly submit to their responsibility. If anything I say from this platform doesn't align with their understanding of the truth, then I am accountable to them in handling the word of God. There's no one that stands as a freelancer. We're here with overseers who are accountable. So I appreciate the overseers here who have asked myself and the other men to help at the conference. I'm going to read 2 Timothy chapter 1 and uh, just pick up the last two words of verse 10 to start. Verse 10, the last two words, it says, The gospel, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Now, it's Sunday afternoon, and I'm not sure why, but Brother Phil and I just looked at each other and said we're tired. He went out and slept in his car because he's older than me. I just uh, squared my shoulders and toughed through it. But uh, you're probably all tired as well. So I don't have anything complicated today that I'm trying to get you to wrap your brains around. I want to share with you in this message the idea that I came to appreciate a little while ago of when Paul says in verse 12, I am not ashamed. Now, in modern English, everyday English today, the word ashamed has maybe shifted slightly in its meaning and we would never really use it much the way that Paul is using it here. So we would use the word ashamed if I've done something wrong and it's come to light. And because of the reproach and the dishonor of what I've done, I would say I'm just ashamed of what I've done. Or maybe we use it even when it's not necessarily something, you know, glaringly wrong or immoral that has brought shame, but just a sense of embarrassment. You know, like if as a man, you put the wrong tie with the wrong shirt and you stand up to preach and your wife is just ashamed at uh, you up there because no one could even listen to what you're saying because obviously this tie wasn't meant but this one was because she picked it out (laughs) so we use the word ashamed um, in a way now in English that maybe has diminished our appreciation of what Paul is saying and what I'd like to preach on for the next little while today is that really what Paul is saying the strength of his statement here is he says I have not lost my confidence. They have not brought me to shame. Mm -hmm. They haven't broken me. 
They haven't shattered me. I'm not quivering here in this dungeon wondering why I lived my life the way I did and was it all worthwhile or was the whole thing just a failure and here I am at the end and what was life all about? Paul says, no, no, no. He says, I have not lost my confidence. They have not brought me to shame. Now to understand why it's pretty significant that Paul says that, Let me just talk a little bit about what we face and what Paul was facing when he wrote this. I'll just ask you honestly, how is your confidence in your Christian walk? How is your confidence in life? Are you standing today as you look at your life and every one of us is unique. So as you look at the circumstances in your life just now, the things that are bringing you joy the things that are causing you concern, the things that you're enthusiastically committed to, the things that you're just going through the drudgery and trying to fulfill your responsibilities. As you look at your life, how is your confidence in God? How is your confidence in God's purpose for you? How is your confidence in the meaning and purpose of God putting you here and using you for his glory? Is it strong? Are you standing or sitting here today and you can say, yes, I am glad that I'm here. I'm glad I'm the Lord's. I know what I'm to do and I'm going to do it with all my might. My confidence is strong. Or are there some here today and maybe it's just a little wobbly. It's a little shaky. Maybe there's things that you once used to hold and you thought, I know this. And now it's just eh, slipping through your fingers. Maybe there's things that you really thought, this is what life's about, it's great, and circumstances change, and you say, boy, is this what life's about? There's crises in confidence all around. There's a crisis in confidence often nationally, globally, economically, ecologically, relationally in families. And as you grow in life and you go through its changing ebbs and flows, if you're anything like me, there's times when, yeah, I'm pretty confident, hopefully not self-confident, but confident and there's other times when boy yeah just you really wonder well what were Paul's circumstances I like the two little words that we have in verse 12 and I'm going to ask you to look carefully at the words in this verse he says for the which cause I also now before the two words I want to draw your attention to notice the next word suffer for the which cause I also suffer remember John Dennison's gospel message last night Christ suffered his suffering was real while Paul's suffering here was real Paul wasn't in a five-star four seasons resort there's some people here just came back from Hawaii four seasons resort in Koalina that's about as close as you get to heaven on earth well he wasn't in the four star uh, or five star four seasons resort in Hawaii he was in a dungeon he was suffering And the two words I want you to focus on, he says, for the which cause also I suffer these things. Because of the gospel, Paul was suffering. And some of the things, as we look through this epistle that he's suffering, he's been falsely accused. He's had a hearing before Caesar where he was unjustly condemned. He's been put into a dungeon, accused as a criminal, and he had done nothing wrong. In the things that he'd been accused of. He knew he wasn't going to be released. There's no optimism of release. 
running through Second Timothy the way there is, for example, through Philippians. He knows he's not going to be released from that dungeon in the sense of being set free to go out and serve the Lord again. Let me just put that in different terms. He knew that his circumstances were not going to improve. You ever stuck in circumstances and really the crying of your soul is, Lord, change my circumstances. Make them better. Sometimes he answers, yes. And by his grace and his providence, he does. He always hears, but sometimes his answer is no. And here Paul knew the answer was no. Circumstances aren't going to change. They're not going to improve. But he wasn't just suffering because he's in a dungeon and it's cold and winter's coming. And he's only suffering because he's been falsely accused and unjustly condemned and put in prison. But Paul is also suffering emotionally and psychologically. Because all of his friends had abandoned him pretty well. In Paul's past, there had been years, years, decades of service. And through many of those years, there was a large entourage that followed with Paul. And they ministered to his needs. And they saw scores of people, hundreds of people saved. Dozens of assemblies established. The work of God go like wildfire. Glory days. You read the list of names in 2 Timothy in quite a number. They had left Paul. In fact, when it came to his appearance before Caesar at his first answer, at the trial, when he's at the court proceedings there in Rome, he says, not one man stood with me. Nobody. There had been a man that had worked with Paul and labored with him, and the language of the scripture concerning him is he had forsaken Paul because he, would, he loved this present age, Demas. So Paul was lonely, betrayed, abandoned. But worse than that, spiritually, these things, Paul's suffering, much of the work that Paul had seen done during his Christian service, it was now being torn down. And there were men who were deliberately going around behind Paul's tracks. And they were turning people against Paul. And I don't know how news traveled then. They didn't have all the means of information that we have. And maybe that's a blessing. But somehow news would trickle into Rome and trickle right down into that dungeon. And Paul learns that those in Asia, where he had seen such tremendous things done for God. Ephesus was in Asia. Think of all we learn about the assembly at Ephesus. News gets through to Paul. All those in Asia, they've turned against me. That's where Paul is. Those are the things, these things that Paul is suffering. So he's there, he's falsely accused, he's emotionally distraught in a sense. He's been abandoned by his friends. His work, you may say, is in danger of going into shambles. And the enemy could easily whisper to Paul, Paul, was it all worth it? The whole thing's falling apart. Have you ever felt that way? In whatever sphere, whether it's in assembly life, there's some of you here older than me. And I know there's some of you here and you've spent decades of your life building for God. And you see things sometimes that break your heart. And it might seem that what you have poured all the good years of your life into, that before your eyes it's just going to start filtering away. And is it all worth it? 
There's lots of parents here. Maybe there's some parents here today and you've spent years raising a family. And you look around at this conference and you see other people's kids, other people's grandchildren. Your family's not here. You look back and you think, was it all worth it? It's not turning out. We all have circumstances that can be disappointing in one way or another. That's where Paul was. That's what he's facing. When he says, for the gospel, I've suffered these things. He wasn't oblivious to it. It's not that Paul was just whistling Dixie, totally unaware of all the problems. Problems are there. He documents them in this letter to his son, Timothy. But he says, nevertheless, even though I know these things, even though I can weigh them up, even though they're real and they're heavy, nevertheless, I have not lost my confidence. Why? What's the secret? Well, I love the next word in the verse. It's a little word for. Paul is going to tell us in this verse why he hasn't lost his confidence. And it's nothing to do with the fact that I'm a strong person. That I'm resolved. That I can stand up for myself. That I'm stubborn. You know, they call it strength of character or stubborn. Maybe it's the same thing. Just viewed from two different ways. Paul's not saying, I haven't lost my confidence because they can do what they like. I'm going to hang on to the end. No. Paul says, I haven't lost my confidence. What's his secret? Well, just a few things I want to draw from these words in this verse that I trust will be a help to you in your circumstances and to me in mine. The first thing I learned after the little word for is that confidence, when it comes to spiritual things and when it comes to life, confidence is based in a person. Paul says here, I haven't lost my confidence because I know whom I have believed. Notice he doesn't say, I know what I have believed. Mm. That is important. I spoke on that yesterday. It's very important to know what I believe. And it's very important to make sure that what I believe is grounded in Scripture and it is in my soul and I hold it and it holds me. The truth of the Bible, the truth of the New Testament, it's critical to know what I believe. But underneath what I believe, when the storms of life really begin to blow, Paul says, I haven't lost my confidence because I know whom I've believed. Christianity ultimately is about a person. It's not about arguing about what I believe or what you believe. Important though it is to have like-mindedness in doctrine. Christianity is, at its core, a living, vibrant, individual person. The Lord Jesus Christ. And how often we forget that. The fact is, there is only one person that we can be absolutely certain he'll never let us down. I was just saying to someone just earlier today that a few days after my dad's funeral, my mom said to me something. She said that, um, it stuck with me, she was, said, I'm just finding out what it's like to be a widow. And she says, it's lonely, it's, it's, it's real. 
You know, you visit other widows and you talk to them and you think you understand what it's like, but she said, now that Danny's buried, I, I, I feel what it's like to be a widow. This is only days after his funeral. But she went on and she said something that's really resonated with me over the last few months. She said, I've come to understand at 85 years old, there's only one relationship that the Lord has told us will never, never, never change. And that's our relationship with him. Every other circumstance in life, it might change. Every other relationship, eventually it will change. Maybe through tragedy, maybe through betrayal, maybe through heartache, maybe through death. But the fact is there's one promise. That without making it sound cheap or flippant, we can take it to the bank, we can rest our soul on it, we can put our anchor in. And we can make ourselves as vulnerable as we may ever choose to be, but we can lay hold of it and it'll never let us stand. And that's the Lord. Paul said that in Philippians 1. said, for to me to live is Christ. Here he is at the very end of his life. And he says, I haven't lost my confidence because I know whom I've believed. You know, I've changed a lot. I do change a lot. I got good days. I got bad days. I got ups. I got downs. I've had times in my life when I've really enjoyed close communion with Christ. I'm not saying that boastfully. It's just a fact. And I'm sure most here who are saved, hopefully you can say the same thing. I've had periods in my life that have been as cold as ice. But you know what? Through all of those, he's never changed. Never. I spoke just a couple of weeks ago at St. Thomas about Peter. Peter had tremendous peaks in his following of Christ. Think of Matthew 16. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter was about to just plunge into one of the deepest valleys in his Christian experience and deny that he knew the Lord. And in the space of just an hour, Peter goes down that roller coaster and he finds himself at a fire and he says, I don't even know the man. Peter changed. You know who didn't change? The Lord didn't change. The Lord loved Peter. The Lord knew Peter. The Lord told Peter. The Lord looked at Peter. The Lord restored Peter. The Lord used Peter. The Lord never changes. It's the same for you. It's the same for me. It's the same for Paul. Confidence will never be found in trying to dissect my circumstances and make sense of them. Sometimes circumstances don't make sense. Confidence will never be found by trying to examine myself alone and look for hidden strengths that I might be able to muster to face things. Confidence will never even ultimately be found in looking at others in the support group around me of friends, thankful though we should be to have one another. There is one person to whom we can always turn. Confidence is found in a person who will never fail. He'll never leave us. He'll never turn away as Brother Doug reminded us. He's promised he'll be with us right to the end. And when everything else changes, we can turn to him and know that he'll be there. So confidence in this verse is found in a person. But secondly, I think we learn here from Paul that confidence is based on my relationship with this person. So it's not just a fact. It is a fact of history. It's a, not a feeling or something subjective. It is an objective 
fact that there is a person, thank God, that we know of as the Lord Jesus Christ. But confidence ultimately is found in my relationship with this person. You see that in two ways in the verse. Paul says, first of all, I know whom I have believed. So Paul could go back even from that dungeon. He could trace back through those decades of Christian service. And his mind would go all the way back to the event we know of in Acts chapter 9. When he's on the road to Damascus, determined to stamp out Christianity, and the voice comes from heaven, and the cry is wrenched from his soul, Who art thou, Lord? And in that moment of time on that road, Paul realizes, he hears, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. And Paul believes. In a moment in time, he believed what he had fought so hard against. He believed in this person. I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Paul believed. I know whom I have believed. That trust, that characteristic faith, it marked him throughout his Christian service. But it began at a point in time. Maybe it's good for us to go back to that point in time. Every one of us, the moment we were saved. Don't build all kinds of extra baggage around it and make it super elaborate. Maybe especially us men who speak from a platform do that. I told you last night I was 10 when I was saved. I don't know how often I've said, and people must have think, he must have been a really incredibly adroit uh, outstanding 10-year-old because I put all sorts of adult thinking back in to my 10-year-old experience. <laughs> and so much so that it's actually difficult for me to remember exactly what I knew or thought or understood. I don't think I was any wonder kid at all. But there's a couple of things I do know that I grasped. I grasped at that moment that I could not ever do anything myself. And I grasped at that moment that he had died for me. And he had done everything. And Christianity in its kernel, at the very beginning like that, is such a simple thing. It's all him, nothing of me. And then I get life. And then what happens is life meanders along and gets so complicated. The fact is, very often we forget it's still all about him. Every step of the way, it's all about him. Mm -hmm. And where I get into real difficulties in life is when I think it's all about me and he gets left to the side. But notice in the verse, not only that he says, I know whom I have believed. But when you come to the end of the verse, depending on which English translation you're reading, in the King James, we'll read it the way it's there. It says, he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And I would suggest to you that Paul not only had a moment in time when he believed, but Paul had a lifetime of service that he had committed to him. If you or I could have accompanied Paul. Through those journeys in the book of Acts, those three missionary journeys and then ultimately the journey to Rome. If we could have served alongside him as Timothy did. And we could have said to him in the midst of the high points and the low points. The great victories for God and the great adversity that he faced. And we'd say to him, Paul, why are you doing this? I have no doubt Paul would have said, I'm doing it all for him. It's all for him. He did everything for me. He says, I'm doing it all for him. How do I know he'd say that? Well, he wrote it. 2 Corinthians 5. He says, the love of Christ constrains me. It hems me in. It controls my life. It governs my choices. Because I thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. 
and that he died for all. So that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him that died for them and rose again. Paul had a lifetime of Christian service that had been committed to him. That's communion. That's the sense that every day of my life as I am going about my activities in whatever the circumstance might be, I am doing it unto him. I know whom I've believed and I'm living a life that's being committed on an ongoing basis to him. And the relationship that I have with this one is what gives me confidence when it comes to the time of crisis. So confidence is based on a person. Confidence is based in my relationship with this person. But thirdly, confidence is based on truth about this person. It's not just subjective. I worry sometimes. I don't like to come across as being too critical, as, as though you know everything that's being done is wrong, and everything you're reading is wrong, and everything that people are pushing is wrong. And but I am concerned about one trend in a lot of modern Christian food. A lot of the blogs that you can read, and a lot of the you know the little quick things you can get coming in your inbox, and many of them are good. I'm not decrying it, but I am concerned about a trend. And it's this, that an awful lot of what is fed to believers becomes very subjective on how I feel. And so the measure is, am I enjoying the Lord today? Well, it's important to enjoy the Lord. But in many ways, the joy of the Lord is the byproduct of a self-sacrificial life that's poured out to him. That's where the joy comes from. It's not the object originally. It's not what I'm searching for. If my measure of how things are going spiritually and how my confidence is in the Lord is how I feel today, I'll tell you, I've had some great days. I've had some atrocious days. Paul's confidence was not based on something that was subjective, something that was based on how he felt, something that was based on how things were going for him. Paul's confidence is based on a person, his relationship with that person. But I want you to notice in the verse, it's based on truth about that person. Because he uses a word that gives that away. He says, I know whom I've believed and I am persuaded that he's able. I am convinced that he's able. That implies not just a frame of mind or a, a mindset at a point in time. But by using the word convinced or persuaded, it implies a process that leads you to that conclusion. So Paul says, I have learned about this one. I have learned truth about this one. And I have seen the character of this one. His immutability, the fact that he can't change. His love, his interest, his grace, his power. I've learned it. I've taught it. I've written about it. I've experienced it. And based on all of the evidence, I am persuaded that he's able. You know, there's really no such thing in the Bible as blind faith. Faith is what gives substance 
to things that we can't see or things that we hope for. That's the 11th chapter of Hebrews. And there's many examples in our Bible of people that acted by faith. But when you examine it, their confidence was in God. And their confidence was in what they knew to be true about God. And it was their confidence in God that gave them strength in a crisis. You take Abraham. It was referred to earlier, Genesis 22, the first mention of love. Take now thy son, thine only Isaac, whom thou lovest, and offer him up. And Abraham says to his servants, he leaves them, I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come back to you. It's that dear man's walking up the mountain with the fire and the wood and his son. What is it that took him up there? Well, you find when you come to the New Testament, you get another wonderful word, accounting. Accounting that God was able to raise him from the dead. It wasn't blind faith. It was a knowledge of his God. He knew that God's promises wouldn't fail. He knew that God wouldn't go back on his word. He knew that God had said that in Isaac his seed would be called. And he knew that the God he knew would definitely see that through. But that same God's telling him to offer his son. So knowing his God, he said, God is able Mm -hmm. to do something he had never seen done. God is able to raise him from the dead. And Abraham's actually given credit for that happening in Hebrews 11. From whence also he received him in a figure. The three boys in Babylon, another example. Those three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're standing before Nebuchadnezzar. And with a sneer in his lip, he says, Who is the God that will deliver you out of my hand? Go on back. Sort of dismissively. You know, just go on back there. And when you hear the music bow, and I'll let you away with it, I should really throw you in the furnace now. But I'm going to give you a chance. Go back. And when you hear the music bow down, and all will be fine. Because who's the God that's going to deliver you? If I ever run into these boys in heaven, I don't know if you're allowed public displays of affection and glorified bodies, but if you are, I'll give them a hug. Because I love their answer. They look at this great king and they say, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. And he will deliver us. But if not, we still won't bow. What gave them courage? Were they just like brash Brigadiers, they could sort of, no, not at all. What gave them courage was confidence in a God that they knew was able. Mm -hmm. Paul here says, I haven't lost my confidence because I know who I believed and I am persuaded that he is able. How about your God? How about mine? It's the same God that Paul had. My faith might waver. My confidence might falter. But he's just as able. Hasn't lost an inch or an ounce of his power. He's just as interested in your life today. As he was in Paul in a dungeon. His level of interest and care and provision and promise. Doesn't vary based on how we measure significance. It's not that all of heaven is somehow focused on a great apostle. But a little insignificant Christian like you struggling along with things people don't know about. You don't register on the interest scale of the risen Christ. That's not true. He knows you, loves you, cares about you. And he has omnipotent power to help you in your circumstance. Paul knew that. He said, I haven't lost my confidence because I know whom I've believed and I'm persuaded that he is able. But then the verse ends. What is he able to do? 
Well, there's two ways to translate this last clause of the verse. I like both of them. King James Version, many English versions. Literally what the words mean is he's able to guard my deposit. So it can be translated one way. King James says, he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Basically what Paul's saying is, no matter what happens in Asia, everything that I did for God, everything that I did in faithfulness to my Lord, it's safe and it's secure because it's in his keeping. And no one can take it away. The Lord measures faithfulness, not results. And whether it's faithfulness in a marriage or faithfulness as parents or faithfulness in assembly life or faithfulness and personal devotion to the truth of God, wherever sphere that faithfulness might be, God measures faithfulness. He weighs it. He assesses it. He appreciates it. And he banks it for eternal value. And there's not a power on earth can touch it. And Paul says, I know whom I believed and I'm persuaded he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. The other way that clause can be translated is, it's this way in the ESV and other translations. It says, I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So it's not now the thought of what I have committed to him. It's taking the deposit the other way. And it's saying, I am convinced that he is able to guard against that day what he has entrusted to me. You know what I learned from that? Is that Paul understood that the, the, the value of my Christian service is not up to me to try to preserve and keep. Paul viewed very seriously the, the truth that had been entrusted to him, the deposit, the stewardship. Stressed that yesterday. He's handing it off now to Timothy. He didn't take it lightly. But neither did he think that it was all dependent on him. It's as though Paul's saying here, he is able to preserve the truth. He is able to further his work. He's the one that said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We have the benefit of almost 1900 years beyond Paul to look back. Has he done it? Thank God he's done it. The truth came to each of us, didn't it? been under attack for centuries, for millennia. But he's preserved the truth. And the gospel came to us. And the truth of the word of God came to us. And the truth of local gathering came to us. And we have it. And there's many men and women that have been used by him in its preservation. And by his grace, he'll raise up others to continue his work. It was very easy to get so despondent and so down and so distraught over the way things seem to be going. Now, I'm not at all suggesting that we should be complacent. I'm not suggesting that we should just whistle Dixie and think everything's fine when it's not. What I am saying is we can't take it all into our hands and somehow try to patch together with duct tape and rubber bands some way to try to keep what only God can keep. Ultimately, it's his work. And ultimately, we're his servants. And Paul learned in that dungeon the secret of confidence. I know whom I've believed and I am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. So whatever your circumstances might be today, I hope as the conference ends, 
There's no magic wand that's going to cause you to wake up tomorrow morning and everything's better. Chances are you'll wake up tomorrow morning and things will be exactly the same as you woke up this morning. But as you face them, ask the Lord for grace to get your eyes off just the circumstances and off just yourself and get your eyes focused on a man who has all the power of the Godhead in a body at the right side of his father's throne and he has promised that he'll be with you. And whatever tomorrow brings, whatever it brings, you can face it with confidence if you know whom you've believed and you are persuaded that he is able. Amen.